Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by David Francis on September 26th, Lord's Day Service. This is our final Sunday School of the Month, and we'll finish up our How to Read the Bible series. All right, so... um, if I don't know you, I'm David Francis. If we haven't met before, I'm a, a ruling elder here. And um, what I want to do for the first little bit is we'll review the past couple weeks and go through uh, uh, some examples to flesh out the ideas just another time because we're not trying to, even though this is kind of a survey type Sunday school class, we don't really, I'm, I'm hoping we don't survey too much or we don't go deeper. So where you come away from this uh, this month saying, well, at least I know something about what David was trying to communicate. So I want to get those uh, implanted in our heads. So what we'll start with is prayer. Ask the Spirit to help us to understand, to learn, to help me teach, and then we'll get moving. Our Father, uh, Father, uh, we thank you that you are a, uh, a loving and kind Father who wants to give wisdom to his children who earnestly ask and desire it. So that's what we ask for. Give us eyes to see the the treasures in your word, would you bless the words of my mouth and our thoughts and, and our ears as we uh, attempt to understand what you have said to us. And it's in Christ and I pray. Amen. All right. So in week one, um, Matt uh, taught about the historical grammatical method. And just as a reminder, a reminder, this is kind of just the standard approach when it comes to approaching the Bible if you're going to like seminary. So if you were this fall headed to seminary, you'd probably take a, a course in this your first semester. It's pretty standard uh, approach to it. Um, and Matt gave a great crash course in 50 minutes to give you a good feel for what that was. And again, the idea for this method is we as moderns are trying to look back at the original audience and the, origi- and the author and try to figure out what was the author trying to communicate to the original audience. So doing our best to go through the various cultural implications, the time, the physical location, you know, what was happening at that time. Um, is it, And then also looking at what is the particular genre of the book? If What's the, maybe the, is are the people being obedient during the time this book was written? Were they disobedient? Was, what was the political climate like? So these are the type of questions that help to uncover what was happening at that time. Maybe what was the um, the uh, what the author was it trying to uh, portray to the people and how they would have uh, understood what what the author was saying. So for um, for an example, we're going to look at the Book of Acts. Um, so at the beginning in the Book of Acts, Luke identifies himself as the author. And unlike some books, which it takes a little work to try to figure out who exactly the audience is, Luke tells us who the initial audience is. Does anyone know who the book of Luke was written to? Theophilus, that's correct. Um, now, 
there is a small debate, I suppose, on who exactly that is, but he's likely a Gentile of some nobility. Uh, and also, we saw it, the, the Gospel of Luke was written to Theophilus, and then in Acts, it begins with addressing him again. So Luke 1 begins with, Inasmuch as as much as undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, having delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then, so that's, and then you have the entire gospel according to Luke. And then ends that in the beginning in Acts 1. He, uh, Luke begins again and says, in the third, first book, the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Uh, so, what were the purposes? Well, it seems pretty clear right there that Luke was trying to compile an accurate account for Theophilus. And Acts is, what is the book of Acts? It's a narrative about the early church. And so uh, perhaps a good question to ask when we look at specifically the book of Acts is, well, why did Luke continue writing? Because we see that he wrote about the gospel of Jesus. He wrote about Jesus' life and the world during that time. And then he picked back up in Acts. So what motivated him? Why did the Spirit tell, uh, or why did, why did God say, let's uh, inspire Luke to continue writing the book of Acts? Um, well, looking at verse, verse 1 in Acts, we see a clue here. Uh, we see that he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then we have a turning here. Um, until the day he was taken up and given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So there's a big uh, emphasis change between the gospel that Luke wrote and then the acts that Luke wrote. And that we're, we're changing some of our focus here from Jesus to the Holy Spirit. Now I want to stop here and, and relate a personal story to you. I remember the first time I had listened to a, a audio Bibles on CD. This was way back. This is pre-apps having Bibles that could read to you. And someone had given me a stack of the New Testament on audiobook. And I thought, oh, this is pretty neat. Uh, this is probably about 10 years ago or so. And I had a business trip. When I was living back in Mississippi, I had to drive from the coast. And I thought, I'll pop this in and pick a book and listen. So I picked that. And uh, I remember, because that was the first time that I can remember listening, reading, listening through the entire book of Acts in one sitting. It was five hours. I had plenty of time. And I remember getting to where I was going, just had finished the book of Acts. And my thought was, the overwhelming thought that I was thinking was, can anything stop the Lord? Uh, he is powerful. He does what he wishes. And it was quite overwhelming to me, at least. I mean, I still remember to this day where I was at when I was just dwelling on and meditating on what just what did I just listen to related to the book of Acts. I didn't know at the time, and I didn't pick it up, that Luke was saying, right at the beginning, he was cueing, uh, giving us a tip to say, this is a book about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit has worked through the early church. Um, he tells us right at the beginning, but I didn't catch it at the time. 
So I would highly recommend reading through Acts or just any entire book of the Bible in uh, one or two sittings at a time allows you to, because there is a benefit in going to a commentary and figuring out what is what are the, the, the theologians and our church fathers, how are they interpreting these texts? But just reading through a Bible, uh, reading through a book in one sitting does a lot to give you uh, understanding what is the context of this book. Because there's something about just continuing reading on and your mind is just um, continually at work, picking up on new things. And especially after you read it multiple times, you'll even catch little phrases that you may have overlooked. You thought were throwaway, fra- throwaway phrases, but then you begin to see, oh, this actually does mean something, this little bit here. Um, so one more thing about the book of Acts, which I wanted to point us towards uh, with this historical grammatical method in mind to try to understand how books were organized, how they were presented. Uh, it's easy when we look at the Bible, we would say, all right, we, uh, if you have a book, how is it organized? We can say, well, chapters and verses. That's how these books are organized. You know, I can go to Acts 7, verse 1, or verse 20, and it points to, all right, here, this is the verse. And that's really helpful for us. But when Luke was writing, he wasn't saying, chapter 7, verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? Verse 2, and Stephen said, like, those were added much later. In fact, um, the chapters were, it, it open your Bible, you know, the, the chapter numbers, they were added about 800 years ago as helpful to reference things so that we could talk to one another and say, well, what about, you know, in 1 John 2, you know, our minds can go to a place as opposed to saying, all right, where, what were you talking about? Um, and then about 500 years ago, the verses were added in to subdivide the chapters for us. So this is relatively new to the Bible. Um, but Luke actually gives, well, I will um, propose to you some natural breaks in his narrative that he gives about the early church. So if you're note takers, I'll give you the breaks and you can go home and check them out for yourself. But I'll also read them as well. But there's five breaks. So the book of Acts is broken into six different panels or sections, if you will. So um, chapter six, verse seven, chapter nine, verse 31. I'll read these in a second. Chapter 12, verse 24, chapter 16, verse 5, and chapter 19, verse 20. So here is, uh, as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see these phrases at these different subdivisions. And at this moment, the movement changes a bit. So starting in Luke, uh, starting in Acts, Luke, uh, (laughs) starting in Acts 6, verse 7, here's what Luke says. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests came obedient to the faith. It was kind of a, a summary statement talking about the blessings the Lord is giving and how the church is increasing. So then we have three more chapters, and then Luke 9, verse 31, uh, he says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Okay, so that's another break where we see the same idea. The church is growing, increasing, multiplying. We have three more chapters, and then go over to uh, for, uh, chapter 12, verse 24. And then we have this, another kind of a ending of a section. But the word of God increased and multiplied. One more chapters of narrative. 
chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in number daily. And then finally, three, three more chapters later, 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So we don't have time to go into it. I'll leave it as homework for you if you want to do it. Maybe you can look at what happens inside each of those panels, and you'll see there's distinct movements inside each one. And so Luke was organizing his narrative of Acts in a particular way, and it, uh, and these are uh, these are helpful ways to these are helpful panels to get your mind or, uh, oriented to oh what is he trying to actually communicate to us? Um, so some of the thing the, the big thing of Acts is the Holy Spirit is moving through the early church and the expansion of the churches. Um, now we have, uh, for instance, Luke, uh, Luke begins in Acts to focus on Peter and then he moves to focus on Paul and then he also has locations that he's interested in. He begins in Jerusalem and he talks about Samaria and Judea and then he talks about the ends of the earth. Again, these are, you'll begin to see these themes, these trends as you go through. But um, uh, so this is a review. So I'm I'm leaving out the here and now portion because well, we don't have time for that to really dig into that. But that's the then and there. You know, how do we understand the Book of Acts then and there as that original audience would have understood? But then the second step of this method, the historical grammatical method, is what about here and now? How do we take the Book of Acts as we understand it then and apply it to my life, our life? Trinity's life, the church as a whole's life. Now, so for instance, is everything in Acts normative? What do I mean by that? Every little thing that we read the church doing in Acts, does that mean we're supposed to be doing it exactly? Or do we take liberties here and there? How do we take the book of Acts for us now? For instance, when Paul leads the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, they're on the I think they're all on the beach and they, they cry together as Paul's about to leave. Then all the elders come and hug and kiss him before he goes. Do we do that? Um, uh, and then also, what about when uh, they need to appoint a new disciple as Judas has killed himself and they say, we need another one. So how do they appoint one? They draw lots. Do we do that now? Or does that mean that at Trinity we need to be lot drawing? Uh, and there's a bunch of other, there's a lot of examples in Acts where we need to decide, well, what do we do with that? Well, I'll go ahead and answer those two. Um, and if you've got any more, we can talk about some of those specifics. But no, I, I doubt you'll see the elders kissing here at Trinity. That's kind of a cultural thing. And then two, uh, lot drawing. We actually don't practice that either. Uh, there, But that's not to say that throughout history, Drawing lots to understand what decisions the Lord would have for us is a bad thing. Because in fact, it wasn't. This was, for the Old Testament church, um, a, uh, a method of which they made decisions. But we do see, once, once the Holy Spirit came to the church, we don't see this practice happening anymore. So that's uh, at least uh, one of the reasons that we don't practice lot drawing anymore um, in, the, in the New Testament church. Um, so I'll stop there. Again, that's the historical grammatical approach. And uh, that's the, the last show here about that this Sunday school. Um, but if you want to dig more into it, um, uh, I, the name of the book is, uh, remind me, Matt, what's the name of that? I just, I'm drawing a blank. How to read the Bible for all. 
How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. I pulled a lot of examples from that book, and it's pretty easy to read, and there's a few others. I'm sure Matt would be happy to give you some uh, recommendations if you want to extend your study in that area. Um, next, though, the last week, what I introduced was the topic of typology. So I think I gave a, a kind of a simple definition, a bit uh, a bit narrow, but one of the definitions that's probably the easiest, it kind of rings true for most of the idea of typology is, how do we see Christ in the Old Testament? Uh, and when I say it's not quite as full of definition as we want, it's because um, there are different, the idea of types and patterns, there are plenty that point towards Jesus, but there's other ones as well. Um, for instance, when in Acts, we'll go back to Acts for this part, when Stephen is seized, uh, and he's, he's about to be uh, uh, killed by being stoned, he gives a speech right before that happens, right? And in this speech, one of the things he says, uh, this is in verse 44. Let me just, uh, where are we at here? Yeah, 744, he says, Our fathers had a, had a tent of witness in the wilderness. And as he spoke to Moses, he directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. So we were talking about Moses was given a pattern to make the temple. And then again in Hebrews 7, uh, verse 8, the author of Hebrews says, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you have made everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Uh, so there's a book uh, I'll reference here, and I would, I would uh, encourage anyone who's interested in following up on some of these uh, themes to read. Uh, James Jordan, he's a theologian and uh, highly celebrated in our denomination. Through New Eyes is a book that I'm pulling from uh, some of these ideas. And he gives a simple and helpful definition for what typology is. So here's his definition. He reminds us that the Greek word typos, T-Y-P-O-S, not typos as in, you know, you've made an error, an error in writing a typo. But the Greek word typos refers to an image impressed onto something else. For instance, wax. You think, you know, you melt wax and push something onto it. It keeps that shape. It's, it's a word used in scripture for the imprint of God's heavenly pattern on the earth. And thus it absolutely is fundamental to a biblical worldview. So, and he continues, as we have seen, there are a succession of such imprints. Each imprint is more glorious than the one before. For instance, Solomon's temple was more glorious than the Mosaic temple. Ezekiel's visionary temple that he talks about in Ezekiel 40, verse 48, was more glorious than Solomon's temple. And then the new Jerusalem that comes after that will be more glorious. The study of how each of these models is transformed into the next and parallels between them, that's part of typology. Typology means that history is under God's control. It's not man, it's not under man's control. It means that the successive stages of world history have meaning, a meaning related to the heavenly pattern and God's purpose to glorify man and the world progressive. So last week we uh, looked at David and Goliath. And that definition definitely holds true where we have um, we have Goliath as the seed of the serpent, David as the uh, triumphant redeeming king that would um, lead his people in the battle after winning, uh, the, the headship um, after he defeats the enemy. 
his victory claims victory for all of God's people. Um, so typology is mainly concerned with types and patterns and symbols that God has placed in the world. Many of these patterns and types reach their fulfillment in Jesus. Therefore, that's why uh, a lot of times when we think of typology, we think of, all right, how do we see Christ in the Old Testament? Because there's so, uh, that pattern uh, through the Old Testament crescendos with Christ and climax with Christ being that the ultimate. Um, uh, but why, uh, think about also how, how we pray every Sunday, how Jesus ta- teaches us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Again, this is the same idea, this pattern on heaven being imprinted onto earth. Um, so one more thing that I wanted to point to towards typology um, that we're moving away from everything uh, strictly looking at Christ's types that we did last week and looking at other types in the Bible and then also how that theme flows through is uh, many things in creation. It's again going to that the James Jordan's book, uh, Through New Eyes. He looks at various creational things. And then says, well, how do we trace these things, these patterns, these symbols, symbols through the Bible? And then that gives us a biblical review. So for, I want to pull one uh, example. He gives lots, but I'll just pull one out. Uh, sun, moon, and stars. So we have uh, in Genesis where we, we know about when God made them. And then uh, we have plenty of scripture that gives that... Um, when, when it explains sun, moon, and stars, it gives them a consistent meaning and purpose. And so when we are reading the scripture and we see something about the sun, the moon, or the stars, should uh, what should we think? Should we just think, oh, he's just, you know, scientifically, oh, we're thinking about you know, something in the cosmos? Or is there some other meaning, another meaning, a deeper meaning, that uh, some idea that's being traced in the Bible? So... Um, here is uh, here is his his example his explanation of sun moon stars. I'm just I'll read this verbatim. I think it's uh, nice, brief, concise, and it'll get the idea across, and it'll help you to see. All right, are there these things that we can see? These themes, these symbols that we can trace and patterns to the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Uh, so here's what he says. One, so he gives like 10 meanings for sun, moon, stars. I'm going to pick one of one of the, one of the patterns that we're meant to see with it. So this is his fifth thing that he sees about the sun, moon, and stars, that they are to rule over day and night, to govern time. So here the emphasis is on ruling sun, moon, and stars. They rule. So astral bodies signified those who were glorified and exalted. So while this is true of all saints, it's also true of human rulers as well. Revelation 1.20 says that the rulers of the church are like stars. And then we see again in Jude 13, the apostate teachers, they're called wandering stars. And then long before this, think back to Genesis 37, Joseph, when he has his dreams, he is talking about the rulers of his clan as the sun, moon, and stars. And we even see this today. Think about flags. So the American flag has stars on it. Those stars govern, talk about governing. It's, it's a symbol of the way we govern ourselves. And then if we look over at Asian countries, 
we see a rising sun. And then if we look at some of the Middle Eastern and Near East countries, we see crescent moons. So it's this pattern is imprinted on everybody. Whether or not they bow the knee to Christ or not, this pattern is seen throughout all cultures because God established it to be so. Um, and I had a question last week, and I think a couple of questions towards this end. I wanted to bring it up in, in case it, this was uh, in more people's minds. <clears throat> is uh, how, just to compare and contrast the historical grammatic method and typology, I just want to say they're not like at odds with each other. It's not like you have to pick one or the other. And this is the right way or wrong way to interpret. They're fundamentally doing different things, right? The, um, the typology, again, this, uh, this is, we're, we're concerned with the content, the patterns, the symbols, and how they trace through scripture. Now, there is some overlapping area where, as we try to understand the original audience, like if we go to look at Genesis to say, all right, when God's explaining how creation works, um, well, as Moses is writing this out and we're seeing a pattern form, did that original audience see that pattern? What is that pattern? And then how does that pattern propagate through all of scripture? And it's fine. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no competing methods. These do not compete as methods. Uh, the New Testament writers encourage typology. And if you look back to the church fathers, I mean, this was, uh, right after even the New Testament was finished, uh, being written. Um, the church father, the, the men of the time were already writing about these type of ideas. So this isn't like a new thing. This has always been the case throughout the church. Um, and then if you want some more homework, if you want to see another example, uh, flip over to Hebrews 7 and 8 and look about how Jesus is compared to Melchizedek. And you can kind of see what, as far as how New Testament writers are writing about um, uh, typology and how to see patterns in the Old Testament. Um, that's uh, two chapters in Hebrews are dedicated to that and showing how Christ uh, fulfills as a type of Melchizedek in that sense. Okay, so that's our review. And the last idea that I wanted to uh, impress upon you all uh, for this uh, Sunday school is that the Bible is the greatest story ever written. Now, as Christians, we can aim in that because, come on, we know God inspired us. So of course, it's the greatest story. But maybe somewhere deep in your heart, you might be holding out and say, well, yeah, the Bible is the greatest story. Sure. I mean, but think about some of our, think about your favorite novel you've read or series or even a movie. Think about your, the stories that you like to tell your children or the book you keep going back to over and over. It's just so good. It's, you know, is the Bible really... When we say as good, is it as good as that? I mean, is it as enjoyable, you know, to read? Is it as a riveting story? Um, well, you know, the, those, the, those other books, they have good plot twists. The characters are developed in a certain way. There's certain literary conventions that, you know, really resonate with me. And boy, it just it stirs my heart in a certain way. Or I, I love how my thoughts are guided in a certain way. It just are masters of the craft. Well, where the exhortation today is, um, it would probably be helpful for most of us if we started reading the Bible as if it was fiction. Now, before you say, whoa, whoa, David, what are you talking about? I'm not saying believe that the book is fiction or have any inkling that, you know, I can't trust this book or in any sense it is fiction. 
But if someone hands you a book and says, you know, they cover the, they, they cover up the outside so you can't tell what it is, they hand you the book and say, hey, read this, I think you'll enjoy it. Then you, uh, and then you take it and they say, and it's a novel. Well, all of a sudden you're looking at that book different, right? It, as opposed to if someone gave you a book, you know, same thing, cover it up and said, I think you'll enjoy reading this. And then you open it up and realize it's a textbook. You know, your minds are in different places for a story, a novel, and then a textbook. Um, and so too many times I think we, we take, we look at the Bible and think textbook. You know, there's a bunch of genealogies. There's a bunch of laws. We do have some poetry. Uh, we have all these, uh, we have some narratives and, you know, those are more fun to read or they're more engaging. But um, we don't typically think, uh, maybe you do, but it's harder. I think the temptation is to think that, well, this is just a collection of stories by these various authors that have been thrown together into a, uh, one book and that there's not necessarily like consistency or that there's a, a, a story from beginning to end. So that's what uh, I want to challenge today. We'll look at two examples to show how God is the ultimate wordsmith. And he, as he divinely inspires these men, he is also, in the same way, he's put his spirit upon them to be master literary giants. As they write, there's, there is absolute truth to it. But on the literary side, they're masterfully written. Um, so I want to open the eyes to see a, uh, at least two examples. Then hopefully that will um, uh, get you interested in looking towards, well, maybe I can see this in some other areas. So for instance, let's let's flip over to John 18. We'll be there for a little bit. So if you've got your Bible, um, you might, uh, it'll probably be helpful because we'll, we'll read bigger chunks of that area, of that chapter. All right, John 18. So the context, Jesus has been arrested and, and then in the garden and the disciples scatter. Then the story focuses on Peter. So we're going to start in verse 15, so John 18, verse 15. Jesus has also just told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the day's out when the rooster crows. So John 18, verse 15, let's read together. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood on the outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watching the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. All right, now let's, uh, the next five verses are about uh, the high priest question of Jesus. Let's hop down to verse 25, and then it's, uh, then continuing on. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, uh, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, Ask, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it again. And at once the rooster crowed. Okay, so let's uh, get an image in our head here. We have Peter standing at a distance, and it's cold. It's cold outside. Why in the world did John say it was cold? 
Is, he, is that just like fluff, you know, just adding to the story? Is there a meaning for it? Uh, couldn't he have just said, you know, it's kind of like, you know, big, heavy crowds and Peter's just bumping into people and somewhere he denied him three times. Um, but we also see it's cold. And then the scene, it's, uh, it's developed a bit more. There's a charcoal fire. Peter's cold. He goes and stands around it. And the people that are accusing Peter of such things are also around that area. And it says twice in verse 20, uh, 25, and then also in 18, that he is that Peter is standing and warming himself. Hmm. So what do we make of this? This is one of this is obviously a low moment for Peter. He is uh, he's identifying himself with his accusers instead of Jesus. You know, they're saying, you know, you're with him, and he's saying, no, 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 I'm with you guys. It's a very low moment for Peter. And then the rooster crows. So we have this picture in our head, right? I mean, we have literary devices employed where now we have a scene in our head. Uh, so let's continue on in the book of John to see what is he up to? Why is he writing in such a way for us? So chapter 19, we won't read that, but Jesus is crucified, he's buried. In chapter 20, he's the resurrection. Jesus appears to Mary, then he appears to the disciples, and we have doubting Thomas. And then John 20 ends kind of uniquely. Uh, if you want to flip over to that, at the very end of chapter 20, um, he's exhorting Theophilus. Well, excuse me, we're going to mix up. This is, this is John, not Luke. Uh, he's exhorting his readers, his audience, to believe in Christ. It feels like John is, in a sense, breaking the fourth wall here, because he's telling a narrative, and all of a sudden, he kind of breaks that. And what does that mean in case you know, breaking the fourth wall? It's kind of like if you're watching a movie, your, your characters, the actors are talking amongst themselves, doing a scene, and all of a sudden they turn to the TV, the camera, and say something directly to the audience. You know, it's kind of jarring. It's in a jarring effect that kind of puts you, it changes the mood all of a sudden. Um, it can happen also in theater where on stage the people are do, acting out what they're doing, and then all of a sudden they look to the audience and just say something. In a sense, uh, we're kind of jarred out of the narrative so far John has gone towards, and he exhorts the reader to, I, I could have written more, but I wrote these things so that you may believe. Okay? So we have one chapter left after this. What's going, what's going to happen? So uh, if you want to flip over to chapter 21, um, we see he, uh, John starts this final story. Uh, by saying, after Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. Okay, is that any clues as to what's happening? Perhaps. One thing uh, I've read that is unique about this is the Sea of Tiberias. What is that? That is the Sea of Galilee. Why does that matter? It seems kind of like a random topic, right? No. So everywhere in the Gospels to this point, this body of water has been called the Sea of Galilee, including, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, as well in John. Anytime we're talking about this body of water, it calls it the Sea of Galilee. That's the Hebrew name for it. Now, all of a sudden, when John references this body of water, he calls it the Roman name, the Tiberius, the Gentile name for this body of water. What do we have? We've got the disciples fishing on a Gentile body of water. Um, what do we make of that? So um, 
The sun is rising. Jesus is on the shore. He calls out some fishing advice. And the disciples, they don't know who it is. You know, it's just twilight, so they can't quite make it out. But they follow it. For some reason, they still follow this man's advice. And put your nets on the other side. And they catch a huge haul of fish. Um, and in, uh, interestingly enough, we know how many fish they caught. 153. Why would John have said that? Well, we, we could spend 30 minutes ex, you know, exploring this. Um, most, uh, most of the stuff that I've read related to this number, uh, if you're interested in num- numerology, uh, that's not the right word for it, but there is a, a particular study for how numbers work in the Bible because the Hebrew language itself lends itself to this type of thing. It, that number refers to Gentiles. They caught Gentiles. So we, our minds ought to be at this point thinking, oh, is the mission, is the mission of uh, Jesus shifting? Because he said when he was on earth, I have came for the lost sheep of Israel. Now we're opening it up to the Gentiles here. Again, this is just a side point. The main point here is now we're going to then loop in Peter and him around the charcoal fire because when Jesus calls out, they catch the fish, then all of a sudden their eyes are open. They catch all these fish. The disciples say, oh, that's got to be Jesus. We, we've done this before. This is the second time. So they immediately, and Peter immediately puts his cloak on, jumps into the water, leaves the other disciples. They have to haul the fish back to the shore, which they do, and they find Jesus there on the shore with a charcoal fire. Exact same thing we just read in John 19. Hmm. So that seems curious. So last time Peter was around the charcoal fire, he denied Jesus three times. And the previous fire was provided by was provided by his enemies to give him warmth. So he could identify with his enemies. It gave him an opportunity and a setting to do that. But this time, Jesus, the one who he has denied, offers him this fire, this charcoal fire, offers him food, nourishment, and fellowship. And then we, we read this, starting in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, the son of John, do you love me more of these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to me, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I said to you, when you're young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. He said this to show by what kind of death you must glorify God. And after saying these things, he said to him, follow me. So here we have Jesus reinstating Peter. Do we see the literary tools that John as a master uh, wordsmith is employing here? We have various placements, symbols, foreshadowing. Um, and we didn't, I, I kind of alluded to it, but we didn't really flesh out even how Jesus, um, used, how John was uh, writing about Jesus' various details about 
uh, catching of the fish and how that points back to the earlier in the ministry. There's so many rich things to pull from here as we begin to have eyes to see one giant narrative. Um, so uh, what we want to what we want to see is that the Bible is wonderful. Both on obvious, obviously, it is the Word of God. It is helpful and uh, God's divinely inspired Word for our lives. But it's also wonderful on the literary front. Now, the, the danger here, and I, maybe maybe you're thinking this, maybe not, but I do want to uh, warn you because this could be taken too far in the sense that, well, if the Bible is just a kind of like a literary book that we can study, does that mean that we can stand above the book and then begin to criticize it as if, you know, that, um, you know, John should have said this, or it would have been more clear if when... Uh, Luke was explaining this part in Acts. He would have made, no, we do not have the liberty to begin to think that way, as if there are errors in God's word. Yes, it is perfect in both its, uh, the, 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 the truth of the, the content of the matter, as well as the way it was written. Um, it is uh, perfect as if it is God's holy and inspired word. So I want to give one more, uh, oh, well, one more thought on that is, well, why Why does this matter? Why does it matter that the book is a story and not just simply a textbook? Um, well, if we think about music, you know, what is, music has a way of getting into our hearts or getting truth into our hearts, right? A good song sticks with us. Uh, in, in fact, it's helpful to memorize things with songs, right? Or with, it's helpful to memorize the songs with music, helpful to memorize anything with music, Right. Uh, because there's, God designed our brains in such a way that music is sticky, right? It, it gets in our hearts and our minds, and um, it doesn't leave. In fact, I, when uh, remember when Moses was handing off power to Joshua to lead the people, Moses had given a long list of things for the people to remember and obey. And God said, well, here's what we're going to do. Here's a song that everybody needs to memorize. And so Joshua, before the Lord, Moses and Joshua received a song about God, how God has worked throughout history and who he was. And then God said, this is the method. This, this song will judge the people when they fall away because they'll remember it. They might not remember all the laws and uh, all the other things that uh, they ought to remember and ought to be following, but they'll remember this song. The same thing. A good story sticks with you, right? Um, you remember the good stories, uh, bad stories that you read, you know, they're out of your mind once you finish reading a story, for the most part, unless it's just so bad you can't forget them. Um, but the same thing. The Bible is written as a wonderful, uh, it's wonderful on that literary front because it's meant to stick with you. So one more, one more example, because uh, we looked at the book of John, just how it was kind of self-contained, how John was writing the story there. But we want to now look at a much larger jump through scripture. I'm going to look at something from Genesis all the way to Judges and how that there's connections there as well. Um, and the author of Judges expected us to see something that we uh, from back in Genesis. So, we talk about Samson. This is Judges 16, if you want to flip there. I'm just going to read three verses from it. Judges 16, first three verses. One day, Samson was in Gaza. He saw a prostitute and went to her house to spend the night. The people who lived in Gaza found out that he was there, and he and they decided to kill him at sunrise. So they went to the city gate and waited all night in the guard rooms on each side of the gate. 
But Samson got up in the middle of the night and went to the town gate. He pulled the gate doors and doorposts out of the wall, put them on his shoulders, and he carried them all the way up the town of the hill that overlooks Hebron. He set them down, still closed and locked. Now, Samson, obviously we have plenty of feats of strength from him, ripping out the gate doors and posts while they're still closed and locked was one of these feats of strength. And I think it's interesting. Remember, they were guys. They, they had already got to the, the guard rooms. They were going to get him. He rips it out. I don't, I don't see anything in the story about them filing out the, the guard rooms. Like, all right, let's take him now when he's holding the gates on his back. They, all right, we'll let him go. Um, but there's one detail here. Uh, you know, the, the feet of strength may stick in our mind and we may just take that and say, wow, you know, how about that? But it says he carried these things. You know, he didn't just rip them off and then just chunk them and say, how's about that? Now, because the, the gates of the city were a symbol of who controls the city. If, if Samson can rip the gates off, he controls the city in a sense because all things going in and out, that was the symbol of, uh, in that time when you had walled in cities. You can't protect yourself if your enemy can rip out the gates, right? Well, um, we have here a, a unique detail. He rips them off, takes them up a hill to, that overlooks Hebron, and sets them down. Well, it, this is interesting. Why, did, why? One, why did he do that? And then two, why is it? Why was it recorded for us? So uh, again, this speaks to how I think this many years ago I thought. Uh, I'd heard an explanation from this. I think it was, again, from Jim Jordan. I don't know for sure. But the very fact that I remember it um, just speaks to how this, when you understand stories, when you see stories, they stick with you in the same way good music does. Um, someone he explained it this way, and I thought, that sounds like why it was included. So I'll tell you now, and uh, we can see how there is one long, large story arc to the Bible. He says, all right, so if uh, if you, in your Bible app or on a computer, wherever, if you search for the words gates or enemies, you know, looking backwards from Judges and say, you know, where in Scripture do we see gates and enemies? Uh, it'll, Genesis 22 will pop up <clears throat> right after Abraham had offered Isaac and then uh, the Lord provided a sacrifice for them. The Lord said this to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offer, offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashores. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. So there it is. There's the gates of the enemies. Obviously, uh, Samson has possessed the gates of his enemies. Okay, well, that still doesn't tell us what, uh, why Hebron, though. Um, so if we then continue on, we read about Abraham and Sarah's life. Once they died, where were they buried? Um, well, we find out they are buried in Hebron. And so Samson, he is Abraham's descendants. He was a, he was of the tribe of Dan. He was a Danite. But, you know, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Dan. And we trace Samson's lineage comes from Dan. So he's, you know, great, 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 great grandson of, uh, Abraham. And he knows, he knows the word. So he takes the enemy, the, his, the enemies of his gates to his great, great, great grandparents in fulfillment of the word. So I hope you see the Bible is one well-written story. Um, so we have the, you know, in, in books themselves, the authors will 
make uh, various uh, literary devices that we're supposed to pick up on to help it stick in our hearts and that we can just enjoy it too. But then we also have larger gaps, for instance, this one. They're judges, as it was written. There's plenty of things that we were, we, um, the original audience will pick up on it. And then we, as we do our work, we'll begin to pick up on these things too. The more we read it, the more we soak it up. Um, and so the one thing that, uh, again, reading in chunks and larger, in larger uh, sections, we'll begin to pick up on these things. But just reading the Bible more and more, it's completely uh, submitting yourself to a lifetime of reading and listening to the Bible. I mean, it's fine. Um, even uh, I want to spend a lot of time just listening to the Bible. We have the technology and the wealth now to do such things. Uh, there's plenty of free versions of you know, people just reading the Bible uh, online nowadays on your apps. So even when you're reading the things like Leviticus, you know, it seems like those laws will just never end, or you're reading genealogies, things that seem a bit stale. Oh, <laughs> Leviticus, the place that in numbers where uh, Bible reading plans go to die. Take heart, take heart that the not, your knowledge of the law and, you know, genealogy, these things at that time, they may not seem to bring about the fruit that you were hoping to, that really uplifting devotional message that, you know, then you go and start your day with. Little nuggets through time, you'll begin to see, oh, now that I know a little bit more about the laws that are in Israel, as I read the rest of the Old Testament and see how they conducted themselves, oh, well, that's why they did this, because this law back here was saying this, or this feast, this festival that they have, oh, it was talking about that back then. That's why they were thinking that way, or why they acted that way. Um, so I just a uh, last thought here is that whenever we, whenever reading the Bible seems like a chore, just remember, that's our weak flesh. It's not because of anything lacking in God's word. Um, so we... we Let's, uh, as a church, we do want to devote ourselves to reading regularly. I know that there's plenty of groups here, and it's encouraging to see folks really engaged in reading the Bible together. And if you, if that's new to you, if, or if you're a new Christian and you're not, uh, um, you don't have a, a regular, or regular Bible reading or listening to the Bible, talk with one of us or, you know, bring that up in a discussion with one of your buddies. See if we can encourage one another to really devote ourselves to reading the Word. Um, and letting that shape us, our view, and so that we can have a biblical worldview, um, so as we can live obedient, obedient lives. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.